Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Now, as I tell you every night, you can watch ADH. Tell your friends, though, on your television. Just go to the App Store on Apple TV or the Google Play Store. There it is, all on your screens. Or you can watch on your phone or iPad. Go to the App Store and just search ADH. It's free to watch. Well, from one opposition leader to another, the New South Wales opposition leader, Chris Minns, will join me in the studio tonight. This bloke's got gears. Minns has a right to be optimistic about his prospects at the election next year. There are two elections, one in Victoria and one in New South Wales. We'll look at the New South Wales one first, and then we'll have a look at Victoria. Now, the Labor wave is occurring across the country. But more importantly, the New South Wales government has been in power for more than 10 years. And at this stage, although there shouldn't be, there seems to be a real slowdown of fresh ideas. So for a government which used to be known for leading the agenda, it's now dancing to the beat of Chris Minns, who has led the much needed debate on tolls and nurses' pay. Now his team, and of course he's got this Lismore MP, Janelle Safin, what a hero she is, to thank for this. They are demanding that flood victims are assisted instead of being left to rot. An election is 10 months away and Dominic Perrottet and the Liberals are having to rethink how to entice voters to vote Liberal. It doesn't help having the blamange Paul Toole from the National Party as your deputy. The New South Wales Premier's own panel, Infrastructure New South Wales, handed down his five-yearly report the other day. It advised that many mega projects be put on hold, including the building of some dams. We seem incapable of building dams in this country. Six months of rain, none of it harvested. But despite this so-called report from Infrastructure New South Wales calling for a pause on mega projects, the government obliged when it came to the Northern Beaches Tunnel and other such projects, but they've decided to push on with the second stage of the Parramatta Light Rail. Now, never mind that locals can't stand it, but there's a reason why they won't hit the pause button on this, and that's because the Liberals are at risk of losing the seat of Parramatta. It's political. Hit pause on some projects, but where you need the votes, as in Western Sydney, where they were treated, I might add, like second-class citizens by Brad Hazard and Kerry Chant, keep the projects coming. Just like when they moved the Powerhouse Museum from Harris Street in the city out to the flood-prone riverbank of Parramatta. A brain-dead decision by the then Arts Minister Don Harwin. So we'll speak to Chris Minns, the New South Wales Labor leader, about all of that and more. An election coming up on March 25. And we'll go to David Maddox in London, where the political fate of Boris Johnson hangs in the balance. You can always have your say. Just email me, alanjones at adh.tv. Well, look, governments come and go, but it seems Reserve Bank governors are immune from sanction. It was only last November that the governor of the Reserve Bank, who rarely gets it right, but is still in the job, said, quote, it's still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024. Then again, on a separate occasion, last November, he said, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in next year or in early 2023, unquote. So how far wrong can you get, how far wrong can you be and get away with it? 
Many Australians believed what this bloke was saying. And now look where we are. You've heard me say many times that interest rates at the level we have recently seen couldn't and wouldn't last. Why wasn't the Governor of the Reserve Bank issuing that warning, particularly to young people? Instead, the banks, as always, care only about profit and shareholders, not customers. They're out of the starting gates as quickly as you like. And Westpac led the way last night. It will pass the full increase on and other banks are following. This will add $200 a month for a household with a $750,000 mortgage. And if you throw in last month's 0.25% rate rise, then the person on $750,000 or with a loan of $750,000 will be paying $300 a month more, $75 a week more than when he took out the loan. And there's every likelihood of another half a percent increase in July. By the bloke who said last November that it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024. The bloke who said that is now warning of more large interest rate hikes in 2022. This allegedly to address inflation. Well, what was Philip Lowe, the governor, addressing as recently as last November? No rate hikes likely before 2024. Which Reserve Bank do we believe? And can we see what evidence there is that this blunt instrument of interest rates will answer the inflation problem? As I said yesterday in relation to wages and the Albanese government, the Reserve Bank now seems to be saying, and yesterday I talked about throwing fuel on the economic fire with wage increases, well now the Reserve Bank seems to be saying to the government, if you do anything that might further ignite inflation, and that would be a wages breakout or significant spending, then the Reserve Bank will jack up interest rates again. I mentioned yesterday that wage increases to low-paid workers would have to be quarantined to them alone or a wage breakout would further fan inflation. But there seems to be no apology or indeed no shame from this bloke, Philip Lowe, who said in November last year, it's only eight months ago, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in next year or in early 2023. Well, Mr Lowe, with the thousands and thousands of bureaucrats that you have at your disposal, and with more than 20 of them earning over $400,000 a year, and you are on over a million dollars, your deputy on three quarters of a million, yet you dish out this rubbish miles off the mark to unsuspecting home buyers last July. If you think we're going to raise interest rates in 2023, you've got to have a much more positive forecast for wages growth than we currently have, unquote. What he is saying is that wages growth will generate inflation and then interest rates will go up. Well, Mr. Million Dollar Low, Governor of the Reserve Bank, there has been no wages growth. But you're now jacking up interest rates and telling us that you'll keep jacking them up. This is the same bloke Low who, by inference, was recently arguing his concern about public sector pay caps that, according to Low, quote, entrench low wage growth. Only recently he seemed to be saying that governments have an obligation to lift the wage cap for public sector workers, which would force the private sector to follow. Lowe was actually wanting wage increases. Now he's saying, if you think wages are going to keep up with inflation, look out, interest rates will go up. This bloke is schizophrenic. Let me make the point again. It is young people and battlers and businesses on Struggle Street who took the Reserve Bank at its word and borrowed heavily. Now home buyers may face more than $300 a month in extra payments, and it may not end there. Many of these young people have a hex debt. The hex debt is indexed 
in line with the inflation rate. So the student debt will start to climb. It said that the average student debt was about 24,000 last year on June 1. It was indexed. It would have gone up another $924. Today, tens of thousands of men and women walked off the job in New South Wales for the first time in 11 years. Strike action for what they say is a government pay cut. That is, lift the wage cap for public servants to 3%, but inflation's running at 5.1%. So, with cost of living pressures intensifying, now mortgage repayments and hex debts have come into the frame, all because the Governor of the Reserve Bank on a million dollars a year and some, and his lackeys, a stack of them on a half a million or more, sent the completely wrong signal to borrowers as late as six or seven months ago. The Governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, couldn't get it right then. Well, Mr Lowe, now tell the nation why you believe you've got it right now. Look, I've said many times we don't want to ever again see the kind of anxiety and alarmism that was created by government in response to the pandemic. Nor do we want to see ever again the blatant and reckless throwing of money at a problem such that we're now heading to a national debt of a trillion dollars. And we don't want ever again to see the elected representatives of the people, namely governments, state and federal, bypassed completely by the formation of a so-called national cabinet, which was a disaster. As I've said many times, all those decisions that were taken, many of them draconian in New South Wales police and the army had guns on their hips. These things were never debated or discussed. Well, the public had a say federally on May 21. We know the result. In Victoria, they'll have a say at a state election on November 26, and I'll be looking at that in some detail. But there's a New South Wales election on March 25. And today we've seen tens of thousands of men and women within the public sector walking away from their work for the first time in 11 years, protesting their wage status, which doesn't match inflation. Now, I've said this is an issue that could destroy governments, a wage explosion. Basically, the Public Service Association of New South Wales is saying that the workers can't afford to take the pay cut that Premier Perrottet is offering them. Now, as I've told you, the Perrottet government has lifted the decade-old wage cap from 2.5% to 3%, but with inflation running now at 5.1% and climbing, the argument is the workers are going backwards. 430,000 public servants are taking a stand and no one can be sure where this will end. Their argument is that the share of GDP currently going to wages in this country is at its lowest point since records began in 1959. And the Public Service Association of New South Wales says after years of decline, things are in desperate need of correction. Well, the leader of the opposition in New South Wales is a formidable political opponent. He's been in the job for 12 months with an election as I said on March 25. Chris Minns and the Labor Party need seven seats to win government. Not an impossible task when the coalition will be asking for 16 years in power. And Chris Minns joins me tonight. Chris, thank you for your time. Uh, they're marching in the streets for increased pay. You're going to have to take a position on this. What is it? Yeah, look, I understand their frustration. No one likes industrial action. But as you said in your introduction, when you've got the cost of living going through the roof, uh, when petrol is going up, interest rates, energy prices, as well as tolls, except 
the ability to pay for all of those essential costs of living. It's no wonder that hundreds of thousands of people in the public and the private sector have had enough. We'd like to see a productivity-based bargaining system where we can actually negotiate with the public servants in this state to get a better deal for the taxpayers and a fair wage deal for those public servants. How could you quarantine a wage increase to the public sector, no matter how laudable, how can you quarantine that without it leading to a wage explosion, wage increases across the board? Well, the, the only way to do it is to get productivity in the system. That's how you can have consistent and steady wage growth without it leading to unfair and, uh, and how do you get that? seismic inflation in the system. I think you need a productivity-based negotiating system. So for many of these public sector unions, it's not simply income and wages that they're concerned about. They're also concerned about classification, the number of nurses, for example, on wards. They may be concerned about the conditions in the workplace. And if the government had the ability to negotiate not just on wages, but on those other things that public sector unions are asking for, we think we can get better public services, a fair wage deal, and the government can get some much needed productivity into the system. What would you as the alternative premier say to business and employers when the share of GDP currently going to wages is at its lowest point since records began in 1959? If that's in need of correction, what correction would you put in place? Look, in some instances, that's happening in any event in the private economy. You're seeing uh, a huge uh, labour shortage right across the private sector in nearly every category uh, within the private sector in New South Wales and Australia, whether it's transport and logistics, retail, hospitality, uh, or even in the public service itself. Just this year, Alan, the first police academy class had to be cancelled because there wasn't enough recruits to start joining the New South Wales police force. So that will lead to some wage pressure and wage increases within the private economy. We're seeing that already in the public sector as well. And obviously, you can't have a situation where everything is going up. Uh, fresh food, interest rates, petrol, energy, tolls, fines, fees, charges, everything in the family budget, but not provide the ability to have families meet those financial obligations. That's what's happening right now in New South Wales. You mentioned Wales. before nurses. You're saying what the union wants re-nurses, one nurse per four patients, is not affordable. Yeah, we're concerned about it and we've started negotiations and talks with the Nurses Association. Obviously, we want to make sure that any policy that we take to the next election is affordable and that the taxpayers of this state, when they look at Labor, say, you know what, they will implement these policies. That means when I make a commitment, it's fully costed, it can be delivered, and of course, it's affordable. So if we're going to make changes that not just this government or the next government, but the one after that and after that as well, we need to make sure it's affordable and it can be well, on that, costed by New South Wales taxpayers. On that, I noticed there was Shadow Treasurer Daniel Mookie saying that the New South Wales government's medium term borrowing costs have more than tripled since the last state budget. Does that mean we won't be getting wild promises from you to buy votes? You won't, absolutely. Anything we promise will be affordable, it will be fully costed and it will be, we will have the ability to pay for it and I want the people of this state to understand that when they cast their vote at the next state election and you're absolutely right. Net debt in New South Wales is on its way to $150 billion. It's the largest figure this state has ever seen both in absolute terms or as a percentage of gross state product, we've never seen the scale of that debt in New South Wales ever before. How in simple terms do you address these, you just mentioned them, cost of living pressures, raising it, rising interest rates, supermarket prices, petrol, childcare, and now mortgage repayments? 
Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you need to have a government that's focused on the cost of living, that drives down the cost of living. Two things I'd mention first up, New South Wales is the highest taxing state of any jurisdiction in Australia. Now, the Premier, Mr Perrottet, insists on his Conservative credentials. He's got higher taxes than Victoria, than Queensland, than Western Australia. That's a record, an unenviable record that he has to live with as we get into the next state election. Second point here is privatisation. The government has moved what have often been regulated utilities into the private market. The new private owners have jacked up the trans transaction costs on the users and we've ended up with this user pays US style economy that's burning a hole in the back pocket of families in this state. Only last month we learned that all but one New South Wales Coalition MP had been awarded a parliamentary promotion to boost their base salary. Now, when news of that occurred, you urged Premier Perrottet to extend pay rises to healthcare workers and other public servants. In other words, lift the pay cap from 2.5 per cent. Are you saying that should go to 5 per cent? No, what I'm saying is that we need that productivity-based bargaining system. That's what's in operation in Queensland. The New South Wales government was criticising Labor because they weren't going on strike in Queensland. Well, the reason for that, Alan, is because that government is able to negotiate on classification and conditions as well as wages, get some productivity in the system and not just make a blunt instrument, a big fight with the lawyers in the courts about a wages cap. We need to talk more broadly about the conditions and wages for New South Wales public service. Just on this nurses issue, I think I know a bit more about nurses. <laughs> My second home seems to have been in hospital, but um, I know you're talking about being responsible, fiscally responsible, debt and deficit and so on. The unions who back Labor, traditionally back Labor, are wanting mandated nurse to patient ratios. Uh, you mentioned this before. I just want to ask you, will you stand your ground on that? Well, we hope to come to an agreement with the Nurses Association. We're having discussions with them, but I can't in a blanket way agree to a policy that isn't costed, that I don't know the full ramifications, not just for a government that I would lead, but for all future governments, because as you pointed out, it would be mandated and in fact it would be legislated. So it would be the obligation of every future government forever to meet those ratio standards. I need to make sure that any commitment I make, particularly in health, which as you know, is a growing percentage of the New South Wales budget, mm. is completely affordable. You've been very strong on toll costs. And I must say there are tolls everywhere. I mean, we'd go nuts. Uh, the city of Sydney is surrounded by tolls running across one another. Uh, what, are you, what are you planning to do? What are you saying? to these poor coots that everywhere they turn are paying a toll. What are you saying to them? Yeah, I remember coming on your show many times and saying we can't privatise the remaining stake of WestConnex. We own 49% of it. We've got some leverage in the debate. Don't privatise it to the private sector. Now that we've got one firm, Alan, that owns all or part of the M2, the yeah. M4, yeah. the M5, yeah. the M5 East, the M7, the M8, yeah. Cross City Tunnel, the Lane Cove Tunnel, North Connects and yeah. the Eastern Distributor. One company. So we've got yeah, a 100% one, yep. privately owned toll road monopoly well, in the most tolled city on earth. Well, the Perrottet government says it'll solve the toll problem by spending half a billion dollars subsidising Sydney drivers. So the toll operator, toll operator keeps on ripping us off and the taxpayer picks up the tab. I mean, if you reduce the toll, surely more people might use the tollways and that means more revenue to Transurban. How does that make sense? Yeah, look, obviously we need to come up with a solution to it. It's a terrible problem. I wish they hadn't gone down that privatisation agenda. And I have to say, this isn't Monday morning quarterbacking or trying to be smart once the decision's been made. I warned them at the time that to put that much power, that much commercial power in one private mon monopoly would hurt in particular families in Western Sydney. And that's exactly what's happened. Well, Dominic Perrottet calls it a temporary 
taxpayer-subsidised relief package. What do you call it? Well, I mean, for goodness sake, we're, we're now in a situation for the last two years they've said nothing wrong with tolls in Sydney, nothing wrong with privatisation, and now, they're, of course, they're paying money to Transurban with induced demand on those motorways for people to use it a couple of months after they privatised the thing to them in the first place. So obviously it's a failed policy. We're going to have to come up with solutions. We're determined to do it, but I just wish someone would rule a line in the sand about privatising what in effect are monopolies because users, particularly transport, logistics firms, mum and dad trucking operations, they've got nothing else to use. They have to use these toll roads to get around Sydney and as a result, it's burning a hole in their pocket. Well, just on roads, what is happening to potholes all over the state? They're so bad, you could disappear into some of them. Why not ask the public to tell you which councils have woeful road maintenance? Yeah, it's a great idea, particularly in regional New South Wales. Oh. They don't have the budget and it's Ma been, a, I guess, a decade of neglect when it comes to those regional councils. We need Start to make with sure. the city council. What about drive down Macquarie Street? It's Your not... teeth rattle. <laughs> it's not what? good. It's not good, Alan. We need to make sure we put money into those road budgets, absolutely. Just a quick one before you go. Manufacturing. Gladys Berejiklian said you couldn't build trains and trams in Australia. It seems that Daniel Andrews can. Yeah. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, we're seeing budget blowouts in these foreign-built projects of between 40 and 50%. Imagine if we'd built them in Australia in the first place. Good jobs, on time, on budget. We can do it right here in New South Wales. It just creates a bit of... It needs a bit of willpower from the New South Wales government. And so just a quick one on that. When would you see your capacity to put in place a manufacturing structure that would build our own trains and trams. We've got some fantastic manufacturing firms in Western Sydney and in Newcastle. We've been in discussions with them about upping their capacity. It may well be that we can cooperate with the Queenslanders and Victorians about making sure we've got an East Coast hub when it comes to manufacturing. But I believe we can have young Aussie apprentices, good, well-paid jobs, domestic manufacturing right here in New South Wales. But it requires the New South Wales government to believe in Australia made again. Good on you. Very impressive. Well done. We'll Thanks. talk again. Thanks, Alan. Many, many issues to raise, but we've covered a lot tonight. Thank you for your time. There he is. Tell me what you think of all of that. That's Chris Minns, the new, well, he's been there for 12 months, but relatively new, Labor leader in New South Wales, only months out from a state election next year, March 25. Now, I mentioned in my closing comment yesterday that the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson had faced a no-confidence motion from his party based on the submission of 54 letters to what is called the 1922 Committee, seeking a no-confidence vote in the Prime Minister. The rules require written submissions from 15% of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, 15% of the membership of the government is 54 people, hence 54 letters. They were received by the chairman of the 1922 committee and the vote of confidence took place immediately Tuesday morning, our time, yesterday morning. Boris Johnson won narrowly by 63 votes. I made the point yesterday that Boris Johnson is seriously wounded, but many people raise their eyebrows at what seems a strange process, which revolves around the 1922 committee. It has an 18-member executive committee and a chairman. And the 1922 committee oversees the election of party leaders. So I just thought tonight I'd share a little history with you. It's sometimes wrongly supposed that the name of the 1922 committee derives from a meeting at the Carlton Club in London on October 19, 1922, when Conservative MPs successfully demanded that the Conservative Party withdraw from the coalition government of Prime Minister David Lloyd George. That triggered the 1922 general election but it also brought into the spotlight 
one Andrew Bonar Law. At the time, Bonar Law was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, what we would call our Treasurer, in David Lloyd's coalition government. He resigned on the grounds of ill health in early 1921. But in 1922, at the meeting of Conservative MPs at the Carlton, Carlton Club, when they decided to withdraw from the coalition government of David Lloyd George, to the surprise of Bonar Law himself, he became party leader again and Prime Minister. A general election followed in 1922 and Bonar Law won a clear majority, but he was at that stage a very ill man. He negotiated with the United States over Britain's war loans, but he was seriously ill with throat cancer. Having won the election on the 23rd of October 1922, Bonar Law resigned in May the next year and died later that year. He was the third shortest serving Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, 211 days, and is sometimes called the unknown Prime Minister. But he'll always be remembered as the man who became leader after the MPs ditched Lloyd George in 1922. Well, following Bonar Law's election victory, MPs founded this committee, which became known as the 1922 Committee, a small dining group of new members who were elected in the 1922 election. They soon became a group of very active backbenchers, a ginger group, as they might say, after successive elections, and then the membership expanded. In 1926, all backbench MPs were invited to become members of the 1922 Committee, which became known as the Conservative Private Members Committee. Recently in 2010, after the Conservatives formed a coalition government with the Liberal Democrats, the new Prime Minister David Cameron suggested altering the committee rules to involve frontbench ministers. This angered many backbench MPs, though committee members voted to approve the change. However, under the chairmanship of Sir Graham Brady, the man to whom the 54 letters were written, seeking a vote of no confidence in Prime Minister Johnson, under Sir Graham Brady, who became chairman in 2010, the committee determined that while frontbenchers, that's cabinet ministers and their assistants, could attend meetings of the committee, only backbenchers were able to vote for its officers and executive committee. So when the letters rolled in, as they did when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister and Theresa May, now for Boris Johnson, the name of Britain's unknown Prime Minister, Bonar Law, is invariably raised. He could be called the accidental Prime Minister. As I said, having resigned from the front bench in 1921 due to ill health, when Lloyd George's coalition collapsed, Bonar Law, amazingly, became leader of the Conservatives, won them election and became Prime Minister and the newly elected members formed a committee so their voices may be heard. It's called the 1922 Committee. Their voices are certainly heard. The committee collectively represents the views of the Conservative Party's parliamentary rank and file. And hence, in the last 48 hours, the committee reported to the Prime Minister that 15% of the Conservative Parliamentary Party had put in writing to the committee that they wanted a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson's leadership. Boris Johnson survived, as does the committee. But it's not a question of Boris Johnson surviving, rather that 148 members didn't want him to. I think the Conservative Party's political pallbearers have been called in. Well, as you know, David Maddox is the political editor of The Express Online. I know you love to hear his views. You can read David. He writes splendidly at express.co.uk. 
David, there's plenty happening in Britain. Thank you for your time. Uh, the magnificent and uplifting Platinum Jubilee. That's one thing. Boris Johnson on the ropes. Let's go to the Platinum Jubilee. What's the latest on the health of the Queen? Actually, uh, people are feeling a little bit more optimistic about that. I mean, she obviously paced herself during the kind of the long weekend of celebrations. There was just two balcony uh, visits, but uh, she looked in reasonable health uh, for a woman of her of her years. And uh, you know, she's talking about uh, being, you know, continuing to reign until her last day. And, yeah, that's uh, what she said. Sure, you know, there's, a, there's a bit of confidence about. Look at those pictures, unbelievable. I, she said she'd continue to serve until her dying day to the best of my ability. But what a beautiful woman. She said she was humbled and deeply touched by mm. the public celebrations. I think it puts an end to any suggestions, David, that she might abdicate. Oh, yeah, I, I was never in doubt that she would continue. Uh, the, you know, the, the famous story about it is that when uh, she was anointed by oil at her coronation, she saw that as a kind of uh, a touch from God, you know, yes. an ordination from God. And, and uh, uh, she, she would never give it up. I mean, there's been a few European monarchs who've, who've quit in the last uh, few yes. years, but not, yes. not our queen. <laughs> do, 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 you think, do you think that her, the whole celebration uh, changed the mood of what has been a politically divided country? Yeah, it, it definitely brought people together. And it, it was actually really good to see those, those huge crowds in central London out on the Mall. And things. It was nice to see the Union Jack flying everywhere. Yeah. There's been loads of bunting around, loads of flags. We've had one up at our house, and our streets been decked in in red, white, and blue. It's been, you know, it's been one of those weekends where everybody, everybody for once, feels proud to be British. Yes. which uh, yes, I mean, know, is a good thing. They had the lip readers working overtime, didn't they? I read that after the national <laughs> anthem, the Queen reportedly turned to eight-year-old Prince George. And she could be heard saying, wow, did you expect that? <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, you know, I think I think she was genuinely touched by the size of the crowd in front of her. I think it was uh, pro probably genuinely a surprise to her. But, uh, you know, but, but it's but it's not really surprising, you know, given her length of service, the amazing, amazing job she's done as, as monarch. Well, not and, just for us, and, but for you guys as well. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know. Where were Harry, where were Harry and Megan? Where were Harry and Megan in all of this? Well, they were desperately trying to throw themselves in front of cameras and, and managed to be kept out of a party almost altogether. I mean, they were invited to events, but they were shuffled off into a kind of corners. They were... <laughs> sat at the opposite side to William and Kate. I mean, uh, there's no no rapprochement there, I'll tell you. No. At St Paul's Cathedral, it's um, you know, they and they were they were virtually invisible, mm. apart from you know the point where they got booed David, when they entered the cathedral. Which David, I, I, I thought it was a reminder that dignity and duty have their place in the world and are worthy of celebrating. And we saw that from this wonderful woman. Well, now to Boris Johnson. It was a vote on the future of his leadership and he survived it. But when you've got 148 against you, can you survive? That was uh, a catastrophic result for him. That was, uh, I, I woke up early on Monday morning to the announcement that this vote was going to happen. We all kind of expected it to happen. Uh, but at that point, people were talking about 110 and that would be bad enough. But anything above 110 
would mean that his own ministers were voting against him. Remember, they, they don't do it publicly. It's, it's done in the kind of privacy of a ballot box situation in, in the House of Commons. And, uh, you know, 148 was much bigger than anybody expected. It's hard to see how he can survive, mm. but... Boris is a great survivor, he and, and and he believes in himself. You know yeah, the one-page memo that listed thirteen reasons to drop him, but it seems amazing. Only three years ago, he won an eighty-seat majority. I know, and uh, to a certain degree, I think some of his MPs are forgetting about all this. Uh, you know, he 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 is still a winner. I mean. He's behind in the polls, but that's normal to be behind in the polls in the midterm election, especially after he's been through what he's been through. It's 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 difficult to say. I think his big problem is that a lot of his MPs don't think he's a real conservative. And that it's more than the colour parties in Downing Street. That's it's the policy issues. Net zero, tax rises, that sort of thing. That's David, many yeah. people are saying, why did they pull the gun so early? ahead of these by-elections in two weeks' time. Now, Wakefield, and you have some strange names for electorates over there, Tiverton and Honiton. Now, that's June 23, not far mm. away. You've got your ear close to the ground. Is it being suggested that in the seat of Tiverton and Honiton, for example, the retiring member got 60% of the primary vote? Is someone saying the Conservatives could lose that seat? Yeah, I... I'd... Very possible. In fact, I would say it's probable. Uh, if they win the seat, it, it'll be seen as a good result. It's not unusual for by-elections to be lost by the governing party, even where they had a whacking great majority. In this case, the uh, MP was forced to resign because he was caught watching porn in the yeah. House of Commons, yes. which uh, was, you know, pretty, know. Well, uh, it... pretty poor. I mean, and, and there's been all these other issues going alongside I it. Know. Uh, and the other thing that's quite interesting is we've got a thing what we're calling the Rejoiner Alliance, which is Labour and the Liberal Democrats having this kind of unofficial pact to not run against each other or to not have serious campaigns against each other. So in Tiverton and Honiton, the Lib Dems have been given a free run. And the uh, uh, in Wakefield, which is the other one in Yorkshire, yeah. uh, the Labour's been given a free run. And the whole point about this is that they hope to... Uh, Labour cannot muster enough seats in an election to rule on their own. But if they can get in with the Lib Dems, they could form a majority, right. potentially and then take us back into the European Union. That's right. I think a lot of the people on the Conservative side are knocking off, trying to knock off Boris for that reason. Just a quick one to our viewers, because mm. it's first past the post over there, no stupid preferential deals like we have here. And in Wakefield, the Conservatives at the last election got 47.3% of the vote. David, it is a That's tradition, right. is it a tradition, I mean, or, or a fixed rule of the 1922 committee that after a vote of no confidence, another can't pl take place for 12 months. Now, if the Conservatives do badly on June 23, could that rule be changed and could there be a vote again? So it is a fixed rule at the moment, but that doesn't mean that they can't change the rules. And uh, there is a lot of talk about them changing the rules. If they do really badly on June 23, then uh, I think it's quite possible, especially going back to that 148 figure. Mm. 148, mm. just to put this in context, is 41% 41 of his MPs. 
that's you know that's a big amount who have no confidence in him of mm. his own party. That's rough. And yeah. uh, you yeah. know it's it's hard to that's more than Margaret Thatcher when she was kicked mm. out, mm. more than uh, Theresa May when she was yeah. forced out. Mm. You know it's hard to yeah. see. You can get as I said, I said I think the pallbearers are being called in. I was interested in a piece that you wrote though, and you said that the Red Wall MPs and they're the people from the Labor North who won their seats from Labor. Mm. You said that they were sticking with Boris Johnson. Now, you've got your ear to the ground there. That's an interesting issue, isn't it? It is. And, and to a certain degree, this is the new electorate for the Conservative Party. British politics is reconfiguring around, again, around the Brexit uh, European Union question. And that brought in a whole load of traditional Labor seats into the Conservative Party. And these what we call Red Wall MPs, which were the Tory MPs from former Labour seats, are very loyal to Boris. There's one or two who don't like him, but most of them are very loyal to him. They still mm. think he's got the magic touch. Mm. They think that his politics are right for them. So, you know, uh, and they were the core of his support uh, on Monday to to escape this vote. Uh, Jeremy Hunt Jeremy Hunt seems to be with, talking a lot and obviously got his eye on the leadership. Um, I asked you this last week and you told us about the education secretary who was about 20 to 1, Nadim Zahawi, uh, who, I mean, it's all very yeah. saying getting rid of Boris, who would replace him? Well, this is this is a big question. Uh, again, uh, this may have helped save Boris. There is no obvious replacement. I think Nadim Zahawi is a good bet. He's the, the obvious compromise candidate. He's Brexiteer, but had uh, very, very competent... Uh, and, and actually a good media performer as well. But there's Liz Truss as well, who's our foreign secretary, who's the bookmaker's favourite. Uh, Jeremy Hunt certainly fancies himself. He lost last time to Boris. Mm. But uh, I, I don't see the Conservative Party actually electing Jeremy Hunt. No, he's, no. he's seen as too wet, basically. Just before we go back to this royal family and those reports that Prince William and Harry haven't given any public indication of reconciliation, according to some reports that I read, Palisades worked behind the scenes for months to choreograph the Jubilee service so that Harry and William wouldn't come face to face. And as you said, they sat on separate mm. sides of St Paul's, arrived at different times, didn't make any eye co contact with one another. And Harry and Meghan relegated to the second row as non-working members of the royal family. What insights have you got there? Well, I, I mean, the, the word was, the reports were afterwards, that uh, Harry and Meghan said that they wouldn't be coming back to Britain much after after the Platinum Jubilee celebrations that are going to be spending most of their time in America. And quite frankly, the vast majority of the British public, I'm talking like three quarters of the British public, are only too happy for that to happen. Yeah. But, uh, you know, along, alongside Boris, they were the only people to get booed over the weekend when they arrived at St Paul's, oh. uh, which, which tells you everything. Uh, I, I, I think that the main royal family, William in particular, but also his father, Charles, uh, feel let down. It, it, it may, may be too strong a word, but betrayed by what Harry has done, mm. and uh, more, even more than Meghan in this case. Mm. So there, there's a long way to go before any healing of a rift. Uh, absolutely. A good riddance, we all say, I think. Good riddance. And so before you go, the standard question that I seem to be asking you now every <laughs> night, will Boris be Prime Minister this time next week? 
Uh, he'll be Prime Minister this time next week. I'm pretty sure of it. We haven't had any ministerial resignations <laughs> yet, which which is which is saved his bacon for now. Uh, let's see what happens on June the 23rd. And as I said to you last time, June the 23rd is a significant date in British politics because that's the day we voted to leave the European Union. And Boris, of course, was central mm. to that. So, mm. you know, if he has a bad defeat on Brexit day, you know, there's yeah. all to play I for I think your, your words were, he'll be toast. I think you said, he'll be toast. David, yeah, Brad so, well, there is a, there's, an interesting, there's an interesting meme going around of different... <laughs> Layers of toast. Uh, one of them's uh, very burnt toast, and the next one is Boris. So we'll see. <laughs> hey, David, great to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Our viewers love you. We'll talk to you again My next pleasure. week. There he is David Maddox, and of course, you can read him at express.co.uk. Look, on this program, we try to make complicated issues as easy for you to understand as is possible. We are on the side of those in Struggle Street, and the last thing we need is a repeat of the pandemic mood. Yet the first major post-election polling research revealed today shows that more than 1,400 voters between May 23 and 27, just after the election, identified cost of living pressures as their top concern. So for the teals of this world, none of this matters, they can afford it. But for others, grocery prices, petrol prices, rent, insurance premiums, childcare costs, and now mortgage repayments matter. People are understandably anxious. The worst part of it is that the poor coots who pay have had nothing to do with creating the problem. As I said earlier in the program, would people have borrowed to the extent they did only months ago if this architect of getting everything wrong, the governor of the Reserve Bank, Lowe, hadn't told us only last November, it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024. And this bloke's on a million bucks. 100% wrong. He should be dropped immediately from the team. We don't want to hear from him. You can only be wrong so many times before we say move on. Which brings us to another component of the government and bureaucrat made mess that we're in. Government has taken us to a trillion dollars of debt and more. The bureaucrats have taken us to the mortgage repayment crisis because the taxpayer was given the wrong advice. And now people are stressed again, pessimistic about the direction of the economy. The new Labor government has to arrest this pessimism and the anxiety, but they are front and centre in the energy mess. Now, we're supposed to be transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables. We're told it will happen with ridiculous and unachievable reductions by 2030. The Greens want a bigger say in Parliament, and I note the new government is going to give the Greens and the Teals a greater involvement in question time. This will mean, of course, fewer questions from and less scrutiny of the government by people like Peter Dutton. But it's the Greens and the Teals and the Labor Party and large sections of the Liberal Party and that fool little proud in the National Party who keep talking about net zero emissions, transitioning from fossil fuels. Yet we still receive over 60% of our energy from coal-fired power stations, and we're told, well, these power stations have been shut down for maintenance, it's an ageing fleet, and they're all going to have to be phased out, unquote. Well, hang on a minute. This energy shock is about the escalation in the price of energy, electricity, gas, and your power bill. Isn't this of government's making, government's plural? And yes, the previous federal government. You can talk all you like. The energy policy of politicians on both sides 
is about getting hairs on their chest. We will transition from fossil fuels to renewables and we'll give billions of dollars to the renewable industry to make it happen. So, if you're a board member of an outfit that owns a coal-fired power station, would you put your hand up to open another coal-fired power station or to update maintenance or to revamp your existing ageing coal-powered infrastructure? Why would a corporate owner with half a brain commit capital to the upkeep of a coal-fired power station when government is mouthing renewable energy production, which never materialises adequately, but government's prepared to subsidise this renewable stuff, reportedly to the tune of almost $3 billion a year up to 2030. Now, I've said many times that energy policy can be summed up in one sentence. Here it is. Energy must be available, reliable and affordable. Renewable energy is none of these. Energy costs will skyrocket because price is a barometer of supply. If bananas are in short supply, the price of bananas goes up. If we demonise coal-fired power so that there is hesitancy about investing in maintenance or updating the infrastructure or indeed exploiting our millions and millions of tonnes of coal reserves, why would you invest in coal-fired power? If government is telling you that you're going to be punted and they're pouring billions of dollars into the other side. So when the coal-fired power station breaks down or isn't maintained or updated, the electricity supply reduces, the price goes up. What about the gas producer? Why don't we go gas? We've stacks of it. If there's a shortfall in coal or coal-fired energy, why can't gas pick up the tab? Well, I'll tell you why. Governments, here we go again, approve licences for gas exploration and allow the bulk of this to be exported overseas. You can't blame the, blame the producer who wants to sell his gas on the international spot market at exorbitant prices. But government have allowed this to happen. We don't have, as Western Australia has, a gas reservation policy. And anyway, sending gas from Queensland, that is where you reserve a certain proportion of the gas for local consumption. But sending gas from Queensland or the Hunter Valley might sound okay, but there's insufficient pipe capacity to transport the gas. I'm glad to report that I've read someone today who echoes the comments I've been making for years and which Matt Catavan made again on this program only this week. Elizabeth Knight writes today in the Sydney Morning Herald, amongst other things, what the crisis is teaching us, that's the energy crisis, is that a relentless and uncoordinated transition to renewable energy is dangerous, unquote. And Elizabeth, you are right. The Albanese government is going to have to step up to the plate, except that their energy policy only accelerates the crisis. It doesn't relieve it. Well, look, before we go tonight, I note that the new Deputy Federal Liberal Leader, Susan Lee, said the other day, no doubt trying to be clever, that the Prime Minister was, quote, waving goodbye to Australia's energy crisis from the tarmac as he departed for his trip to Indonesia. I'm sorry, these are the sort of juvenile comments that the public are fed up with. Only Deputy, because there was no one else, Susan Lee needs to do a lot better than this to prove that she's worthy of the role. The truth is, an energy crisis doesn't happen overnight. Australians know that. The energy crisis, as I've explained for years, has been cooking for years. It's been a mixture of bad ingredients, like the constant demonisation of fossil fuels, and here is the end result. And you know who is in power for the past nine years? The Coalition. The idea that a Labor government comes into power and a week or two later the energy crunch occurs due to the high demand for electricity during winter and the fact that we export most of our coal and gas overseas 
And that's why the crunch is happening. So Susan Lee, simple message to you, do better. Anthony Albanese's trip to Indonesia, look, forget the politics, I don't think he's put a foot wrong. It's been a huge success, why? Because Indonesia is not only a neighbour, but also a democracy and home to 279 million people. That is a whopping market. Albanese was joined by his trade minister, Ed Husik, and industry minister, Don Farrell, as well as Penny Wong. But not only that, nearly a dozen of Australia's top business leaders were there as well. People like the Commonwealth Bank's Matt Common, a good man, where ComBank has had a presence in Indonesia for 25 years. Matt Common said, it's a very large market. It's a huge population with a good growth profile. And for Australian business, it's definitely a market they should be considering, unquote. This is an economic partnership we must foster. All the talk about having to find markets other than China and to stop putting all our eggs in the one basket, well, this is what Albanese is doing. Working closely with Jakarta has and always should be a priority for any Australian government. Yes, the government has inherited a very strong bilateral relationship from the coalition, but Indonesia is still yet to crack Australia's list of the top 10 trading partners. For us, Southeast Asia is it. We're not a part of Europe or of the Americas. This is on our doorstep. Now, I know Susan Lee reads numerology. Maybe she should flick through an atlas as well. Professor Anwar from Jakarta's Research Centre for Politics said, the road to Jokowi's heart will be business and investment, referring to President Joko Widodo. The Prime Minister said on Monday night, while donning a batik shirt, the official Indonesia textile, he said, the truth is that our economic relationship has struggled to keep pace with the reality of Indonesia's extraordinary economic rise. The new Australian government that I lead is determined to turn that around. We're putting trade and investment at the heart of our regional and international agenda. We see Indonesia as central to our trade diversification plan." Unquote. Well, Australians, forget your politics, should be cheering. The never-ending aggression of the Chinese government and their ad hoc trade blackmail is economically not sustainable. We have to diversify. Full marks to Anthony Albanese on this one. And that's it for me tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night on ADH TV. Thanks for joining us. Good night.